All right, we're going to go to Proverbs 17 today, and we're going to consider a little bit about what Melissa just sang about, that uh, our words have power. She's talking, she has, as that song sings, it's, it's about you, your words can actually speak life into someone else. You realize that? That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That what you say can be the difference between life and death for someone. Uh, really, really powerful stuff. Uh, I've always thought that I'm a decent communicator. Obviously, I do a, a job that is about talking and speaking. And um, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a challenge to find the right words and whatever. But, you know, try to find a way to express things so people can understand. But evidently, I am really hard to read. I've, I found this out a couple weeks ago. I'm really hard to read. Um, and I don't know, maybe you think that. Maybe you think I'm weird, whatever. But I found out from people who are really close to me that I'm hard to read. Now, it's not in how I speak. It's not in sitting and having a conversation with me. It's not even in how I would write if I would write a letter or something. It's in the world of texting. I mean, we're going to get real here. Here's the deal. I do not know the language, the second language that's required for texting. The world of emojis. It makes me sweat just to say it. I can't stand all the little pressure to put the right emoji with the, you know, this face and that. I don't do it. I won't do it. So sometimes when I text something, all these people are very fluent in this language of, you know, that's the emotional context of it, whatever. I just think if I wrote you the words that say thank you, I don't need to put a kissy face next to it so you know that I'm actually <laughs> thankful. You could just take me at my word. How about that, you know? But I don't, so I don't write emojis. So sometimes people are like, well, are you mad? Are you joking? Are, I don't know. Do you know me? You know, could we just, so sometimes it turns out that it's difficult for people to read because of the context, but your words carry an impact. And I, I think that what we're going to talk about today, we come back to this over and over again in the book of Proverbs, the idea of how your words matter. And when we talk about wisdom, wisdom as a direct uh, conduit into what do you say? And how do you say it? Wisdom talks about changing your life and in some ways changing your life by controlling your mouth. And so let's think about for a second the power of words. The power of words. Uh, Last Saturday, I did a wedding. You know what I did in order for those two to become man and wife? It was Lisa Landis and Dave Gottlieb. They became man and wife. You know what I did? I led them in some vows. They said words to each other. And suddenly they were husband and wife. They made a covenant with words. People say, well, it's just a piece of paper. Okay, well, just a piece of paper has words on it that are a covenant, that are a contract that say, I want it to be clear. This is what we're committing to. That no matter what comes from here until the end, as much as it depends on me, I'm with you. Right? Twenty This, this year, this past week, we celebrated 25 years of marriage, Dana and I. Thank you. Yeah, clap for her, because that's, you know, that's an accomplishment. But here's the deal. 25 years ago, we stood in a really hot church in Salem, Oregon, and we said words to each other. And that did something, right? But it was living those words out. It was those words had meaning and truth behind them, and that carries you. If, if what you're saying, if you're going to devote yourself to it and you're going to live it out and it's going to find a way to, to work it out over time through good times and bad, through easy times and hard times, it's going to walk itself out. We live in a house and at the, that house became ours when we went to some place and we signed a bunch of papers that had a bunch of words on them. 
And we signed words to own that house. Words are really powerful. They can change your life, right? Think about it in just a day-by-day thing. What's the difference to your experience in life if you go through the day complaining about everything that's happening? How does that change your day? Ah, man, I just knew I was going to be late. What's wrong with these drivers? Why are they so dumb and in front of me? And why doesn't that person at work ever do what they're supposed to do? And if all that's coming out of your mouth is negative, what happens to the the feel of your life and the feel of everybody's life around you? It's heavy, isn't it? On the other hand, if you're a positive person, if you're an encouraging person, if you're looking at the upside of things, and that's the kind of stuff that's coming out of your mouth, doesn't that change the texture and the tone of your day? Words have real power. Some of us have found ourselves on the other side of that equation where uh, people's words to you have been devastating. Words have the power to destroy God gives special places to some people, special roles like roles like mom and dad. And when mom and dad speak words into their children that are damaging and, and I don't know why we even had you and what's wrong with you and you'll never get this right and you'll never be good enough and why aren't you like your sibling? Words that damage and destroy, right? And I know people who 60 years later are still struggling with words they heard when they were seven and eight years old. Still trying to untwist that from their soul. Words have real power. Some of us let a running torrent of words fill our minds without ever considering what those words are going to do. Are you one of those people that have a conversation in your head without thinking, what's this conversation doing to my life? You just think and think and think, but what does it do? Where does it go? Other people stick around people who use words carelessly and, and just subject themselves to damage beyond measure. So we've all experienced the power of words in one form or another. What we want to talk about today is this, the choices you get to make about the words you use. Not comprehensively, and, and, and wisdom is kind of like this, especially when we're in Proverbs. Wisdom is kind of like this. It is not absolute. It's, it's advice kind of stuff. So it's something that in general has some truth to it, but it's not that every single person has to do this every single time. It's not that this applies to every situation, but the Spirit of God can take this and apply this to your soul if you'll let him. And I think that uh, very clearly he will. So what I love about this is this is stuff that you can actually put into action this week, today. You can start today and put some of this stuff into action, and I hope you will. It may mean that when we get done this morning, you've got some people you need to use some words to to say, I'm sorry for what I said. Or I'm sorry for how I said it. I'm sorry for the impression that I gave with how I said it or the attitude in which I said it, right? Some of you might need to make some decisions about the kind of things that you will say and you won't say. So let's look at it. Proverbs chapter 17, we're going to start off by looking at a couple of verses. And I'm just going to read the first verse because this one is a real punch in the face to our culture today, okay? So here it is. Verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Just soak that in for a second. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. There's a mindset that this is talking about, and the mindset that comes behind it works itself out into peace and quiet or strife, conflict. It is so timely for the world and the culture in which we live. Because what it says is this. It is better. Let's pull it apart. It is better. It is more 
advantageous to you. It is more desirable, more valuable. It has a bigger payoff in your life if what? If you have a dry crust of bread with peace and quiet than if you have a feast with strife. Now, for you and I, food is not quite the rubber meets the road issue that it was when this was written. Food in this day and age was the difference between living and dying. You know? And when famine hit, it was a good chance that if, unless you were one of the nobility, your life was in danger or the life of someone you loved was in danger because you wouldn't be able to eat. And so when we talk about a dry crust of bread, we're talking about somebody who hasn't probably eaten in days, but they, they have a little crust of bread, a little bit of, of stale leftover bread that they can break apart and share with their family. And they, they can just barely have something to taste tonight. It doesn't taste good. It's not something mouth-watering. It's just a dry crust of bread, but we get to share that. But coupled with it, peace and quiet. A home that is at rest. A home, you know, not, not filled with arguments. The, con- the contrast is a home filled with strife. So, so not all this battle and all this rage and all this shouting and yelling and all that kind of stuff. A home that is peace and quiet. A home where people feel safe and secure. The way home is supposed to feel, right? This home is free from strife, making it safe and secure. I wonder how many of our homes have this kind of better place. This kind of more valuable treasure, peace and quiet. And I wonder further how many of them lack a good portion of peace and quiet because of the other side of the proverb, that we are all chasing the feast. That we are stressed out, rushed, hurried, running around, trying to work out the details of our life so we can have a feast. Better is a dry crust of bread with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Is there an application to make to our lives today? Better to have less than you need, not enough to survive on physically, than to have the strife that comes from making lots of money. I'm asking you today, do you believe that? Because if you do, it will change the decisions we make in comparison with the decisions the world around us makes, won't it? In other words, the promotion at the job is Great if you get more money and, and the chance for advancement is wonderful if you can be more you know, powerful and, and more and save your career and all that stuff. That's wonderful. But do you value what the Bible says, which is that it is better to just have a dry crust of bread than a house full of feasting if the difference of what it's going to do to your home is the difference between peace and quiet and strife? Do we pursue that direction? Do we believe what the Word of God says about that? How many homes in America are living proof that we choose to spend our days and our energy and our peace to have more. But we wind up throwing away everything that matters. Believers, if we want our light to shine brightly, we've got to have deep roots into what actually matters. We've got to have homes that when people walk into them and families that when people peek into them, they go, that's the kind of family I want to have. I'm not talking about faking it. I'm not talking about social mediating your family so that everybody thinks your family's perfect. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about a family where you are deeply connected and safe with one another. Do we have those kind of homes? Some of our homes here need a shift in their tone starting today. Will you participate? Will you be a part of that? 
So better a dry crust of bread with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The other verse I want to talk about, we talk about conflict, is verse 14, which is this. Go down to verse 14. It says, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Here's what this verse says. If you think that fighting is going to get you what you want, you are devastatingly wrong. If you think that arguing and bickering and fighting for leverage for the upper hand is going to get you something that you want, you could not be more wrong. This fighting will not benefit you in a way that you actually want. It is this idea of trying to prove your rightness. And so it says, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. You think about a dam that holds back water. Uh, it's it's for, for any number of reasons. You know, it's supposed to stop water from getting to where we don't want it to get. But the idea is that a very small breach, a very small crack, a very small hole in that dam starts to let some water through. It's not a big problem. It's just a little problem. It's, it's not going to do anything really bad except... People who lived in this day and and anyone who's been around that kind of stuff recognizes that once you have a small hole and water's going through, it's very soon going to be a very large hole. It's going to be catastrophic because what that dam is holding back is a tremendous amount of energy, a tremendous amount of force, and just given the opportunity to start coming through, it will just wreck everything. And so it compares that to this idea of a quarrel, that when we begin a quarrel, when we start a fight, you're unleashing an energy, you're heading in a direction that is going to release damage in your life and in your world. Uncontrollable damage, outsized damage. Well, I thought we were just fighting about this. All of a sudden, we're fighting about way bigger. Starting a quarrel. That idea is that once we, we get into it, once we think we're going to get leverage on it, once we think the fight is going to give us the upper hand, all of a sudden it's out of control. And it's well beyond anything that we wanted to do. I'm not saying we should never fight. There are fights that are legitimate. We, we are different people and there are conflicts and we need to have discussions. But listen, you and I both know there are fights that do more harm than good. Aren't there? And when was the last time you walked away from a conflict without worrying about how you looked in it and whether or not you were right in it? You walked away because you recognized that the price you were going to pay on the other end was more than you wanted to pay. Because we've all lived enough to know that sometimes fights wreck and destroy. So the other side says, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. The idea here is that this quarrel is, a, is really a word for a legal process where you've taken someone to court. You're trying to get the upper hand on them. You're trying to force them to do what you want them to do. But it said, it says, drop the matter. Abandon it. Walk away from it. It's not, you know, every fight you should walk away from. It's not saying that, but there is a piece of wisdom here. And you should be free to walk away from any fight When the Spirit of God gets in your head, this is not going to end well. This is not going to produce reconciliation, harmony. This is not going to bring us closer together. This is going to destroy. And when you recognize, I'm about to start saying things I shouldn't be saying. Have you ever gotten to that spot where you're like, oh, now we're just about to raise it up the next level, right? Uh, You know, that brilliant idea comes into your head when someone's saying something to you and it's like, bing, the light bulb goes on and you're like, I know what to say back. This is the perfect comeback. They'll be devastated by it. This will be awesome. 
And here it comes. And that's the moment when you need to recognize this is not actually what I want in this relationship. I don't want this. You don't get married saying, we're going to have the best fights ever. This is going to be awesome. I'll be able to destroy you. Right? You don't have a child and, and as you hold that little precious baby in your hand, say, oh man, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to know you so well. I could say words that will just rip you to shreds. This will be great. We don't want that. Except in that moment, we're unleashing a force of flesh that overwhelms us. We start to see red and we start to do stupid things. Because we want to be right. We want others to know that we are right. And so here we come, ready to make sure that they know we're right. There are times where we need to stand up for what is right. You know, in our world today, we talk about the political sphere that's going on around us and all the discussions about, is this right or that right? And, you know, we talked about some issues that that are right in front of us right now. You know, there's gay marriage and there's abortion and there's other things that people feel like, well, we need to stand up for those things. And those things are right. There's social justice and, and working with those who are poor. And there's lots of things out there that are worthy cause to stand up for. But, Do we stand up for them in a Christ-like way? Or do we just flow right into the rest of the political sphere? We say the the gotcha thing, and we say we don't listen to anyone. We don't care to actually solve anything. We just care if everybody knows we're right. We're on the right side, and you're on the wrong side. When does our Christianity start to override our political affiliations? When does being a child of God start to speak light into this dark world? Is, is it a dark world out there? When do you and I, you know, sometimes the people say, well, you shouldn't talk about politics in church. And, and I kind of agree some, in some sense with that because so many churches make it this, this uh, holy grail where if we just get the right people elected, everything will be fine in our country. That's baloney, right? Since when did the right ruler make the, the country godly? That just doesn't happen. You know what makes people godly? When they know Jesus Christ, Right? So people go, well, you shouldn't talk about politics in church. And I always kind of went like this. If you can't talk with your brothers and sisters in Christ about things like politics, where's your Christianity? You mean, like, we can't talk about, you think something different than I do in politics and, and we're going to have some kind of catastrophic argument because of that? I thought we were brothers and sisters in Christ. I thought we were going to be in heaven together forever. Oh, No. Only until, you know, well, you're a Republican. Well, you're a Democrat. Well, I can't talk to you anymore. Like, really? You think a thousand years from now, I'm going to care who you voted for in this election? Do you really think I will? I couldn't even tell you who I'm going to vote for. So, you know what I mean? Like, I don't care. There are bigger things. So when we talk about this, drop the matter. That is not something that is programmed into our world. You have to stand up for what's right. You have to speak into these world's things. You have to stand up for the truth. Yeah, but there's a difference between standing up for the truth and standing up for yourself, isn't there? I'm not saying it's, ever, it's always wrong to stand up for yourself. There are times to draw healthy boundaries. But here's what I'm saying. When pride takes over and when I want people to know how right I am and how wrong you are, I'm out of the zone of healthy discussion. I'm way out of the zone of healthy discussion, aren't I? And so we have to recognize the wisdom that Proverbs is speaking to us here. Sometimes starting a quarrel is breaching a dam. Drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. All right, let's keep going. Uh, The next thing I want to talk about is when someone uses words against you that hurt you, you have a choice about how to respond in words. And so we're going to go to verse 9 because verse 9 says this, and I think this is real, real connected to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's what it says. 
Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. There is no question that at the very core of what it means to be a Christian, it means loving other people, doesn't it, right? If I said, do you sum up for me what it means to be a, a Christian? Hopefully, what you would say is, loving one another like he loved us. That's how Jesus summed it up. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love others as I have loved you. As a matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, when, when, Jesus, when they asked him to sum up the law, he said, well, there's two big commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So loving people is a big deal. This goes a little bit further than just love, just feel love, just feel warm. It says, how do I love? How do I foster love with other people? How does loving someone show up in my words? And it talks about when someone wrongs you, when someone does something against you, when someone hurts you or someone else around you, that you have a choice of response. And the choice of response it gives us is two things. Cover it or repeat it. Cover it repeat it. Some of you are really good at the second one, repeating it, right? So let's look at what it talks about here. Covers over an offense. It means to put the offense away. It means to release the offender from the guilt of the offense and the label of the offense. You are the one who did this to me, to cover over an offense, to choose to put it aside, to get it out of you so that we can reunite. We can reconcile. Love desires the good of the other. So when it's possible, and it isn't always possible to just let it go, but when it's possible, we let go of the mistakes of others, even when they hurt us. Without even having to talk to them about it, you let it go. Some of you have not learned this skill, and I'm telling you, this is a master's level skill in relationship. The ability to say, You did this, you said this, but I'm not going to hold it against you because I care about you. I'm not talking about, you know, they cut off your leg and you're like, I'm just not going to hold it against you. I'm not talking about something major. What I'm talking about is in the daily scheme of life, we're a bunch of fallen people and we keep bumping into each other and people make mistakes. You don't have to call everybody on every mistake all the time because you don't want everybody calling you on all your mistakes all the time. In some way, love gets expressed by letting go of things that are minor offenses and just letting it go. Sometimes the person that you're forgiving is sorry. Sometimes they are not. But you can let go of the right to demand justice. Why can I let go of the right to demand justice? Isn't God a God of justice? Yes. Aren't I his child? Shouldn't I look for justice? Sure. But where are you going to get justice? Are you going to get justice by going at that person and making sure they know how you felt and all? Are you going to get justice from the giver of justice? See, we act like, oh yeah, God is great and God sees everything and God is the judge, except I'm going to judge you right now. I'm going to make sure you know how. Where did our faith go? Is your faith alive and and living and breathing enough that when someone wrongs you, you know that God can handle that for you? that you don't need to sort it all out and figure it out, that God can work out justice. And by the way, in letting it go, you set your heart in a position of restoration, right? If you've let it go, when that person, if that person comes to you and says, I'm sorry, I did something wrong, can you forgive me? You're in a posture already to allow for healing, to allow for renewal, to allow for things to be restored. 
When it says love covers an offense, it's not talking about ignoring it. It's not talking about pretending it didn't happen. It's not talking about sticking your head in the sand. It's talking about looking it in the eye and saying, you know what? I'm not going to hold that against you. And then living that out. Whereas the other side of this is the one who says they forgive, but then keeps bringing it up. What do they do? What's the result of that? It says here, it separates, right? It, it separates close friends. Why? Because it strikes at the very core of what it means to be connected to somebody. Trust. I've told you, I've forgiven you, I've let you go from this, but then three days later, I'm hearing about it again. Oh, I thought you forgave me for that. I, I guess you didn't? Oh, can I trust what you're saying? Because I thought I could, now I don't know if I can. So now I've got to kind of read between the lines to see if I can. Now I'm a step further away from you, aren't I? I'm a little bit more insulated. I'm a little bit more guarded from, from your connection with me. And so I start to break trust. I start to break the thing that binds us closely together, that element that allows us to be deeply connected with one another. And so the result of it, the result of repeating the matter is that it separates close friends. Consider, you know, in our church, let's say somebody does something wrong to someone else. I know that's far-fetched, <laughs> that we would hurt each other. I don't, you know, I don't know why we even propose that. But let's just say we're fallen people and we bump into each other and we hurt each other every now and then. Let's say somebody hurts somebody at church. They do something that is out of bounds, that is wrong, that is, that is hurtful. On purpose or by accident, they do something's wrong. And you notice it. What are you going to do about that? How we face that determines whether we as a church body remain close or grow closer together or if we are separated and insulated from one another. The word repeated here talks about repeating it again and again, going over and over the offense. The effect of that is that we memorialize the hurt. We've institutionalized it. We've told the story so many times. We've talked about it so many times that it becomes part of the fabric of reality. This is what it is. This is who that person is. This is how it feels. And we relive it over and over and we spread it as we share it to other people. When someone does something wrong, there are three places we can repeat it over and over again. One of them is to other people. As I repeat it to other people, I've just broadened the net of the people included in the hurt. The people who have to find the grace of God to give forgiveness and let it go, right? Right? Second person I can repeat it to is the one who did the wrong thing. I can repeat it to the offender over and over again. What's the result of that? Do they feel forgiven? Do they feel loved? Do they feel close to you? Do they feel invited to trust you? Or do they feel in danger? Third person you can repeat it to is yourself. Again and again in your head. I can't believe they did that. I can't. And you can relive it and relive it and relive it. All three of those wind up multiplying the pain of the hurt multiplying it. There's enough hurt in the original instance, but as I relive it, as I retell it, as I repeat it, I wind up doing this with the hurt, don't I? So the advice from Proverbs and the instruction here is, let it go. Cover over it. Not all offenses just get covered right away. Some of them take a process to be forgiven, but every offense should be forgiven. It should not have control of you. Your hurt should not have control of you. I mean, we all know hurt loves to talk, right? Hurt loves to talk. I love to tell people, about, I love to feel understood. I love to feel sympathy. I love to feel like people get it and I'm not crazy for feeling hurt. I, we get that. But when do I stop living in the hurt and move on? 
When do I forgive? When do I move towards healing? What if the person that you want to go vent to, let's say someone hurt you and you wanted to go vent to someone. What if the person you went to vent to is the person God wanted to use to get the attention of the person who hurt you, but now you've infected them with your side of the story first. You've embittered them, right? I mean, sometimes it's not the person that got hurt that's going to speak the truth. It's someone outside the situation that's going to speak it. Well, you're just eliminating candidates left and right as you go spread it, right? We need to recognize the power of our words to do some of the most important things there are in life, connection versus isolation. Your words have a huge impact on whether you and the people that you care about are intimately, deeply, closely connected or whether we're a bunch of isolated islands all living in our loneliness, right? That's why people turn online because going online, you can kind of manage that stuff and it's, it's this virtual connection that's not real enough to actually hurt me, but then it does and you know what I mean? So we get into all this other stuff because we haven't learned how to actually be face-to-face close to each other. Our love for one another needs to express itself in a passion for forgiveness and restoration. If you don't know how to forgive, if you've never restored, then God is saying to you today, let's learn how to do that. Maybe your conversation with people about that hurt is, I want to find out how to forgive, how to let go, how to heal, how to let God be the one at work here. Last person, and I'm going to not spend a ton of time on this because... It kind of speaks for itself. But the last two verses of the chapter, verses 27 and 28, say something else about our words. And maybe these first two things aren't for you, but maybe this last one is, okay? And here's what it says, verse 27 and 28. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongue. We know... People around us love to talk. They love to spill out the story. But these last two verses have a lot to say about how much we talk. It says, the wise people are aware of the power of restraint on words. That you don't have to say everything that comes into your mind. Now, some of you, you need to just put this aside because you you think that being silent all the time is the answer and nobody can get anywhere near you because you're a million miles away and you won't say anything. This is not a license for you to shut up and close off from people. But for some of you, you need to recognize the wisdom that comes with the ability to restrain your words. That you don't need to just flow it out. And even tempered connects it to the times where you're in the midst of an anger or some kind of conflict. And and what takes over is this word spilling out of your mouth. And the devastation that comes out unrestrained in the moments of the heat of the battle, right? And so even-tempered is talking about allowing the momentum of your words to pull you along in something you shouldn't be going along in. Many times in the book of Proverbs, actually in the Word of God, but many times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the greatest strength you can have is the ability to hold yourself in control. Men sometimes feel like, well, if I let someone say something to me and I don't get right back in their face, then I'm weak. Here's what the Bible says, and I know this is like, culturally, this is the thing. You don't let anyone disrespect you. You stand up for yourself right to them. Otherwise, you look weak. I understand that's kind of like our wiring, guys. But here's what the Bible says. Think the Bible might be right? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that 
the greatest strength I have is the ability to hold myself back from responding. Because oftentimes that's harder than flowing into the rage, right? It's, it's because it, what it is, it engages my faith. It says, I trust God with this. I don't need to solve it. I don't need to reconcile it. I can trust the Lord with this. And, and what it does in bigger sphere is it makes you less vulnerable to people provoking you. Because when people recognize, you, you've probably seen this many times, when people recognize they can get at you, they can poke at you, they know your weakness, they know if you say something, if you want to share their faith with them or whatever, and they can poke at you and you'll blow up, see, I don't need to listen to you about your faith. You got your own problems, right? So the Bible talks about restraint of words, the ability to hold your tongue. Do you have this kind of wisdom? Do you know how to hold your tongue? Share less than you could with people. Ladies, sometimes you just want to know what the deal is with so-and-so, right? Or you just want to share that bit of info you just found out about this person or that person. Wisdom says we restrain ourselves. Instead of charging into the battle, we hold back. It expresses some things that are hard to express. Humility. When I hold my words back, I say, it's not so important what I have to say. It's important what others have to say. I would rather learn from you than speak what I already know. Humility. Discretion. Recognizing there's some things that are not appropriate to share with this particular audience, whoever happens to be standing in front of you. It expresses faith that God is the one in charge of me and my situation. And that it is so hardwired into us. It's like this, this, I can't get around it. I can't escape a thing. That the, the, the second verse talks about even fools are thought to be wise if they keep silent. And it doesn't say they are wise. I mean, there's an expression of wisdom. But it says even if you're a fool, if you're a complete idiot, but you don't say anything in the middle of a battle, people will be like, that person's deep. Man, I don't know. They got some stuff going on in their head. They, they're really deep because you haven't said anything. It is like there is this implicit understanding, this, this stuff from God written on our souls that knows if you can control your tongue, you got some strength that's like otherworldly, right? And so in that, the Bible says that even if, you, even if you're a fool, but you hold your tongue, you're considered to be wise. When was the last time someone thought you were wise because you didn't say what you could have said? You know, I will tell you some of the things in my life where I could have said things to defend myself or to hurt someone else and I didn't were hard because you're under attack and you feel like I want to, if I just told you this, you would know, right? I could just stand up for myself. But God called us to trusting him with it, not to fixing it ourselves. He didn't give me a grenade so I could throw it and blow them up. He gave me the ability to just wait on him. So today, here's just the question for you. What needs work in your words today? We talked about a few things, and we'll talk about some more later on, but what needs work in your words? In the world of words in which you live, where's the healthy and where's the unhealthy? Where's the stuff that's bringing people close together? Where's the stuff that's separating? Maybe, maybe in your home, there's been some strife. And it comes because you're chasing a feast. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's achievement or success or position or the approval of someone. And you've been chasing and chasing it and living like that's going to finally make things okay in your home. And all it's doing is producing strife. And you need to go to your family and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I valued the feast over the peace. And I need to, I need to work on that. 
Maybe we need to make some of that right today. Maybe you've been holding something against somebody, spreading what they did that was wrong, and maybe that's been your habit and your pattern, and you needed to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to knock that off. That, that needs to stop. Maybe you need to go to some people and say, I shouldn't have shared that with you because that was something that, that makes that person look bad, and that's not my business. I need to control my tongue. Maybe we need to make some things right. Maybe we need to use our words towards healing, toward the cause of Christ, toward building the kingdom, instead of towards serving my own ego. Maybe. Maybe for you it's just, I need to stop spilling words out all the time. I need to learn to hold my tongue. I need to let God lead me in what comes out of my mouth and what doesn't come out of my mouth. I pray that wherever that is today, that God will speak to you and that you can start putting it into practice after we close in prayer. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, wherever you are, just stand together. We'll be dismissed in word of prayer. And then we'll get on our way to doing this in life. All right? Let's pray together.